Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KJ Kimaladu. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Paul Botner discusses financing the low-carbon future. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speaker today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. I'd like to welcome everyone here to the, and those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio to the 445th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983 to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks and information on upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. If you want to become a member of the forum, you will also find our membership forum on that website. To join us, just apply. We are pleased today to have Mr. Paul Bodner with us to speak on financing the low-carbon future. I'm sure I don't need to remind anyone here that climate change is a central issue of our times or that the conversion to a low-carbon future will be difficult. So it is a particular pleasure to have Mr. Bodner, who is an expert in the area, here to speak to the forum. Paul Bodner is Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock. His team drives BlackRock's leadership in sustainable investing through climate and sustainability research and integration of the resulting insights throughout BlackRock's activities. Mr. Bodner previously served as Chief Strategy Officer at RMI, where he founded the Center for Climate-Aligned Finance and helped launch the Climate Finance Access Network and Mission Possible Partnership. In the Obama administration, he served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change at the National Security Council, where he was a key architect of the Obama administration's international climate policies culminating in the Paris Agreement. Prior to that, Mr. Bodner worked at the State Department as U.S. Lead Negotiator for Climate Finance. He led the design of numerous initiatives, including the Global Innovation Lab for Climate Finance and the U.S. Africa Clean Energy Finance Initiative. Earlier in his career, he was director for carbon finance at the $1.2 billion carbon fund managed by London-based Climate Change Capital and was also a co-founder and partner at Vertus Environmental Finance. Mr. Bodner holds a BA from Stanford and an MA from Harvard, both in international relations. Finally, let me note that Mr. Bodner is here uh, speaking on his personal, uh, in his personal capacity, and that the views he expresses are those of his, uh, his own views and are not those uh, of his employer, BlackRock. Paul, I'd like to welcome you to the Midcoast Forum. <clears throat> Thank you, George. Good afternoon. Thank you so much to the Mid Coast Forum for inviting me to speak here today. 
I've only been uh, here for a day or so, uh, but it is so encouraging to see a group of engaged uh, and expert citizens in foreign affairs here in Camden, Maine. And uh, it's obvious that you could run U.S. foreign policy from Camden, Maine, <laughs> if necessary. And thanks also to my friend Courtney Cease, uh, who works here with all of you uh, in the Midcoast Forum and is an incredible resource uh, on the relationship between climate change and international development. So today we're going to talk about the biggest intentional transformation of the global economy ever attempted, the shift to a net zero economy. What that project looks like from a, the perspective of diplomacy, we'll talk about what it means for the private sector and specifically what it will take to finance the transition to a low carbon future. I'm gonna skip the long history of climate science and economic analysis and get to the point. Human activity is heating up the planet and changing the atmosphere in ways that are rebounding to, ca uh, to cause growing damage to the economy. More emissions means more climate change, and more climate change undermines economic growth and the well-being of communities and ecosystems around the world. This is not a matter of values or ideology or identity. This is a matter of physics and economics. So we face a choice. We re-engineer the economy in ways that scrub carbon pollution, or we ignore the problem and face a rapidly growing and potentially uncontrollable series of risks. Now, as this information has come to be better understood, the global community in fits and starts resolved to take action. After 25 years of trial and error, a multilateral process run under the auspices of the United Nations resulted in the 2015 Paris Agreement. Under this agreement, all nations resolved to limit global warming to under two degrees increase below, uh, above pre-industrial le levels. But in the seven years since the Paris Agreement was struck, interestingly, growing scientific alarm has actually created a shift in these already ambitious goalposts. Greater precision in science and economic modeling has showed the stark difference of even half a degree of warming, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels is the difference between 70% of the world's coral reefs dying out and 100% of them dying out. Hundreds of millions of, of additional people subjected to unmanageable heat stress, much greater frequency of extreme weather causing more and more billion-dollar uh, loss events every year. So, uh, the, the world has converged in recent years around the goal of trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels as opposed to 2 degrees for this reason. And now, nations representing over 90% of global GDP have resolved to that goal. And that project has expanded beyond governments. It was understood first as a project of governments, climate change. We look to governments to solve big problems. Governments then look to each other uh, about how they're going to resolve problems of the global commons. But now, since the Paris Agreement was struck, 
states, cities, companies, financial institutions, civil society organizations have committed to do their part to solve this collective action problem. Now, what matters for global warming is the stock and concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We add about 50 billion tons, 50 gigatons, to the atmosphere every year. And those emissions need to be reduced to zero, net zero, in order to uh, restore balance to the system and avoid more heating. Scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have calculated that the amount that we can cumulatively emit in the future, in order to have a 50-50 chance of uh, not breaching the 1.5 degree goal, would be 500 billion tons, 500 gigatons, which is about 10 times the annual rate, the current annual rate of 50. So if you convert that into a glide path to zero, that, that cumulative amount, a budget, think of it as a budget, it pencils out to the fact that the world needs to reach net zero emissions by approximately 2050. And that goal, net zero 2050, is the one you will hear about over and over again as the goal that has been uh, adopted by, uh, by governments, by companies, etc. And the key here is to understand that speed matters. This is not an organic change to the economy, like the rise of the internet or smartphones. It's an induced change. It's a project. And in that project, winning slowly is the same as losing. But let's be clear. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is very challenging, if not heroic, at this stage. We are already at 1.1 degrees, and it's ticking up. It may be a matter of five or 10 years before we cross that threshold. And we don't exactly control a global thermostat on the wall. We can't just decide what temperature uh, uh, should the world, the atmosphere should balance at. There are all kinds of feedback loops that can come into play and kick in uh, once we reach certain unknown temperature uh, levels and cause us to lose control of the system, like the melting of the permafrost in the Arctic, unlocking methane hydrates from underneath. So it's hard, uh, given where we are today, and how long it has taken to figure out that something should be done about this problem. But more practically, scrubbing carbon out of the economy is just plain difficult. It's about replacing hardware, not software. What emits carbon? Power plants, steel mills, cement plants, chemical factories, planes, ships, trucks, passenger vehicles, buildings, in other words, the physical assets all around us that power the global economy. We want the services that these assets provide, right? It's not that we want electricity, but we want hot showers and cold beer. <laughs> we want mobility services, and we want those services to be available to more and more people around the world. But we want that without the carbon, and that's it. That's what climate action or decarbonization is about in simplest terms. It's capital stock turnover in the global economy, replacing a stock of physical assets that power the economy today 
with versions that don't emit carbon. But what do these assets that I've mentioned have in common? Well, they last a long time and they're expensive. Power plants, trucks, ships, buildings, these are designed to last decades. Even passenger vehicles uh, last uh, for a decade and a half or more. Replacing these with new versions at scale and speed would take an unprecedented level of investment in new technology, in the electrification of the mobility system and home heating and things like that, the deployment of clean electricity, renewable energy and battery storage, green building materials, green steel, green cement, green hydrogen as an industrial and heavy transport fuel, energy efficiency measures to upgrade the efficiency of buildings and homes, low carbon agriculture practices. As you can see, it's a huge economy-wide project. And it would cost an estimated $125 trillion in new investment through 2050, roughly four times the current rate. Now, much of this investment is investment in the classic sense that you can make a return on it. Because if you're generating power that people buy, that's not a sunk cost. If you're selling electric vehicles, again, that's so, so this is not, uh, we don't, we're not talking about 125 trillion of grants, but that is the level of capital investment needed in the economy between now and 2050, if we were on track to meet this goal. But in some ways, uh, building the new stuff is the easy part. The hard part is phasing out the assets we already have that generate the services today. Because these, uh, these things, whether we're talking about a power plant or, uh, or a ship, were designed to have a long life in service. And they're going to potentially have to be pulled out of service before the end of their technical or economic lifetimes. And we'll talk a little bit about why that poses a dilemma. And why it's a different dilemma in different parts of the world. So for example, in the United States, the average coal-fired power plant is over 50 years old. In China, the average coal-fired power plant is 10 years old. So just think about the economics of dealing with an asset that was just built 10 years ago, to, designed to be around for 40 years, versus one that's really kind of already uh, uh, towards the end of its technical life. And right now, we're seeing signs of the difficulty of moving from the system we have today to a system of the future, and the difference between the speed at which one wants to go versus the speed we're actually going in this change. The International Energy Agency published a report saying that in theory, if the world were on track to 1.5 degrees, then the oil and gas fields already in service or already permitted would be sufficient to supply the future market and no new upstream exploration would be necessary. Well, environmental groups have taken that factoid and put tremendous pressure on governments and on traditional energy companies to stop new exploration. But we are not on track to 1.5 degree future. We have an energy system today. We have an energy shock uh, uh, compounded by the conflict in Ukraine, which has driven up energy prices, as I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> and, and we are not yet ready to move from a si as much as we would like to from a system that runs on fossil fuels to a system that runs on clean energy at scale. And so 
to focus uh, just on stopping the production of the fuels that we use today, as opposed to focusing on building demand and the technologies to use different fuels and supply clean energy of tomorrow. This is the kind of debate that's happening right now, and uh, you know it's a it's a heated one for sure. So we have to work on the reliability and affordability of alternative energy sources and retooling the industries that are energy users, uh, not just focus on stopping the production of the fuels we happen to use today, because that will just lead to higher energy costs for, uh, in particular, for, um, for households that are least equipped to deal with that. Now, in all of this, notice that we are speaking the language of the economy, not diplomacy, not politics. And I mentioned the Paris Agreement, uh, which is, of course, an agreement among nations. <laughs> so how do these two things relate to each other? Let's rewind a little bit and consider the, the foreign policy diplomatic aspect of this. The Paris Agreement requires its 193 parties to submit so-called nationally determined contributions, rolls off the tongue, NDCs, which are national targets for reducing carbon emissions, say, 10 or 15 years out. These can be uh, one number, like a big national number, like the one the United States has, uh, as in the case of advanced economies, or a bundle of more specific policies for developing nations. These targets that countries put forward under this agreement are subject to a formal, but pretty light, peer review process and a lot of peer pressure in the public square. Every five years, nations come together and take stock of progress and set new targets for five years further out, and so on. It's a ratchet, ratcheting mechanism involving shorter-term targets for each country that have to be tightened. But fundamentally, it's a decentralized system in which countries decide for themselves what they want to do, often in secret, and then presented to the world, uh, hence the term nationally determined. The challenge with this system is that 193 national targets stacked next to each other, each developed and tailored to national circumstances, don't reflect the way the global economy is actually wired. I mean, as an aside, many of you with a foreign affairs background will be familiar that the, with the logic and language of intergovernmental negotiations and how impenetrable it can be to the public, even sometimes seemingly disconnected from the topic at hand. So when governments try to negotiate things related to decarbonizing an economy, strange things can happen. Do you know how many times the word energy appears in the Paris Agreement across 27 single-spaced pages? That's right, zero. Now, if you go back to the industries and assets that we talked about, most of these companies and the technologies they, they're, they're based on operate globally, even in these challenged times. Take steel, right? Global markets, global supply chains, global capital providers, shared technology pathways. The, the economy is wired horizontally in the industries that cause greenhouse gas emissions, horizontally across borders, not just vertically in ways that make sense in the logic of an intergovernmental agreement among nation states. A UN committee is not going to take the Paris uh, commitments and figure out how to stitch them together efficiently and fairly to drive change in a global sector like steel. 
So what's happening? Well, we're starting to see the rise of an interesting new governance model that's uh, been created out of necessity to deal with this fact. I would venture to say, uh, as a sometime student of international relations, <laughs> that it's something new under the sun in international relations. Sectors are getting together, companies that make steel, companies that own ships, companies that operate power plants are getting together sector by sector with their customers, their suppliers, their banks, their shareholders, and yes, their governments to create a problem-solving axis around industries. And this is, cuts across borders and it complements the vertical orientation of the Paris Agreement. They are creating sometimes what looks like a synthetic global regulator, which is a forum that is capable of problem solving on the question of how a, a global industry like steel is supposed to get to net zero emissions, how that tr technology transformation is supposed to proceed over time. What is the technology roadmap? How is it going to be financed? How is it going to be built into procurement standards for customers of steel, like automotive or construction industries? How are the suppliers that the steel industry depends on going to supply things, including energy, to enable steel companies to make green steel? This is a new way of looking at the problem, and it's starting to bear fruit. In the shipping sector, for example, banks that account for almost the majority of all new ships financed around the world have agreed on a standard, a climate standard for financing new ships. And then the cargo owners who move, who are the customers of the shipping industry adopted the same standard. The insurers who insure cargo adopted the same standard. And this was all done on a global basis, not negotiated by governments, but by the actors in that industry who, on who, whose actions these outcomes depend. Now, governments don't always know what to make of this change. <laughs> um, and the fact that you see the rise of, like, I would say, pluralistic problem solving related to, to climate change and decarbonization. This was very visible at the last UN climate conference, COP26 in Glasgow last uh, November. Um, the world is used to looking to these annual UN climate meetings as the big events on climate change, uh, but they've always been primarily intergovernmental meetings with a sideshow of private sector activities, right? There are two kinds of badges, for example. You're either a party, meaning a party to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or you are an observer. That's it party or observer, and anyone who is not a, a government official attending these meetings is an observer. So the least important negotiator is more important than the most important CEO attending this event. That's the sort of message, right, psychologically. <laughs> um, but last year, the tables seemed to turn, reflecting this change in the governance approach globally. Most of the real action was actually very visibly related to the private sector. CEOs roamed the halls, um, and coalitions of public and private actors came together to tackle specific problems like methane emissions or, or deforestation. So again, the whole approach to global problem solving is shifting from a firm focus on nation states and their negotiated outcomes to this more pluralistic system 
which is a rich but often messy tapestry of national governments, subnational governments, corporations, banks, asset managers, pension funds, technology developers, venture capitalists, civil society organizations. Each of these has committed in some way to net zero but doesn't know how to do it and is looking around at the others in, it, in their value chains, figuring out how it needs to be done. And that ultimately is the nature of the puzzle itself. And therefore, I think a positive development relative to the, the simple way we started this story in the 1980s, when we had finished dealing, or we'd, we'd, we'd created a framework for dealing with the ozone hole, uh, and thought, let's move on to the next environmental problem, which is climate change, and let environment ministry officials negotiate a solution to that one. So here we are, uh, 30 years later. Now, a, a few words uh, uh, for conclusion before we do questions and answer on the role of finance. So in the intergovernmental process, finance has always been a key issue um, from the beginning, but it has always been weighed down by issues of, I would say, uh, ideologically weighty concepts. So. Uh, if you imagine the issue of finance in the, in the late 1980s in relation to this change, at the time, before clean energy was so cheap, before it became obvious that you could do technology innovation and, and you know, reap the benefits of moving to a cleaner economy, this was understood as a cost. It was understood as uh, we, we, the rich countries, were asking developing countries to go a different way in their development path than they would normally and we would have to pay the difference. So, uh, moreover, the damage to the climate uh, as manifested in physical risks and, and disasters, which, which was understood as being caused by wealthy countries, which if you did the math in 1988 or so was true. But of course, uh, the rise of China and emerging markets has happened so quickly thereafter that now developing countries are, have far surpassed developed countries as a source of emissions, and for political and scientific and other reasons, this is now more of a joint undertaking than one where, where wealthy countries do the work and wealthy countries pay uh, developing countries to develop differently if they want them to. Um, yet, the whole ideological basis continues to be more or less the same. It's all about north-south politics, um, and even though the Paris Agreement rep itself re represents an evolution in the diplomatic framing of climate action from one in which only developed countries need to do something to one where everybody needs to do something, the issue of finance basically has not changed. So in uh, 10 years ago, uh, uh, there was a commitment made by developed countries to mobilize $100 billion a year uh, to support climate action in developing countries, both reducing emissions and adapting to the effects of climate change, $100 billion from public and private sources together. And $100 billion is not some scientifically arrived at figure, okay? It's, it's, um, it's more of a gesture of good faith that if uh, developing countries were gonna undertake decarbonization, there would be support coming from uh, rich countries where, where appropriate. But the fact is that it's not gonna cost $100 billion a year to decarbonize emerging markets. You'd need something on the order of a trillion dollars a year of investment if you don't include China uh, in the category. 
and the current rate of investment in developing countries is more like 150 billion. So you need an order of magnitude larger investment. And yet, uh, in the climate negotiations, folks are still generally arguing about this 100 billion figure and whether it's been met or not according to some narrow definition of how you account for public contributions to north-south initiatives. So, unfortunately, the conversation about how to finance this stuff in the public sector uh, uh, domain is pretty stuck and pretty unproductive, I would say. In the private sector, um, this, you get a completely different perspective, right? So, I would say there are two parts to the puzzle, looking at it from the perspective of private finance. You have to finance the new green stuff, and you have to figure out, again, what to do with the stock of assets that you have that are valuable, but which, for some, you know, for the reasons of science, cannot be necessarily operated as long as, as we thought they could be. Financing the new green part is the easy part, right? The private sector fundamentally knows how to develop technologies, how to commercialize them. Um, it's a matter of risk and return, and, it, and there's a growing confidence in, in, uh, in the private sector that, that even something complicated like green hydrogen can be financed privately with tactical interventions by governments. I would describe them as tactical, essential but tactical. There needs to be research and development for breakthrough technologies on the part of governments, and they're doing that. There needs to be some deployment-related incentives like tax credits. Again, we know how to do that. We need to accelerate permitting of things like wind and solar, right? We need to, uh, we need to do some risk uh, mitigation and concessional financing if we want to encourage private uh, investment in emerging markets. So I would describe that as, as tactical. But the hard part, again, is what do you do about the coal-fired power stations, the gas-fired power stations, the cement plants, the steel mills, the ships that we have today? If, if winning slowly is the same as losing, then how do you get those offline when they have value, real legitimate value to people, right? They have value to investors. They have value to workers. They have value to communities who depend on them for a tax base. And unless we can figure out the political economy of making this shift away from high-emitting assets that uh, power the global economy today, we're never going to unlock progress as fast as it needs to go, especially if we take an adversarial approach where environmentalists throw tomatoes at uh, energy companies and, and vice versa. It has to be more of a collaborative undertaking where we recognize that people are worried about value destruction, whether it's they're an investor or a worker or a community, and it's a legitimate concern. It's not that they're standing in the way of a clean planet, or they're evil, or the other way around. I mean, if you have a mortgage, okay, if you have a mortgage and the, the town comes to you and says, I'm afraid we're going to have to condemn your house for public health reasons, but you're gonna have to keep paying the mortgage, what would you do? You, your inclination would be to push back, right? That's just natural. Same thing on a societal level here. The, figuring that out is not something that private 
sector can do on its own. That is where public policy is most important. And people love talking about the green, clean side of this equation, right? But guess what? If you're on a diet, you can't just count the number of salads you're eating. You have to count the ice creams. <laughs> and similarly, the hardest part of this whole story that we've been talking about, moving to a low-carbon economy and financing that shift, is finding a smooth, elegant, dignified way to, uh, to deal with the, all the value that we have plowed into the, the things we look around when we, when we look around all around us here in the economy today. Even as we build the clean, green economy of the future, we have to figure out what to do with that stock of capital assets. So that is the challenge uh, of our times. And it, again, it will require a new, uh, a new combination of diplomatic and private sector collaboration, and I'm pretty optimistic that we're seeing it. Again, the question is about speed. So with that, uh, thank you for your attention and be happy to do questions. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, every time I uh, listen to a talk on this uh, area, I, it strikes me again how incredibly complicated it is. We're going to be collecting questions, and while we do that, I always take the opportunity to ask the first question myself. That's one of the benefits of being the moderator. Um, I found very intriguing your, your uh, discussion and explanation of how industrial sectors are getting together, but all of the different industri industrial sectors also interact with each other. Is there some even further mechanism that needs to be done so that the steel industry talks to the cement industry and et cetera when they're competing for, for similar resources or whatever? Yeah, and to do all that in the context of a market economy where you do want companies to compete and you don't want to, you know, there will be disruptors and winners and losers and that's not a bad thing. So uh, figuring this out, I, I should say, is... Is, is particularly difficult for the United States because the United States does not typically have industrial policy or industrial strategy. If you think about a challenge, a systems change to the whole economy like you're describing, not just within a sector but across sectors, you're talking about changing whole systems all at once. And uh, other countries maybe have a different traditions of dialogue between government and the private sector about what happens when you've got a systems change, whether you're talking about China or Japan or the EU, you know, industrial policy and industrial strategy comes more naturally for various reasons to, to, to some, of, some of these other uh, regional blocks. And for us, it, it, really, it really doesn't. So it's especially challenging. Yeah, here's one, the first one I picked up, which was kind of a follow-up to what I just asked. And can you expand for a few moments on the international oil and gas industry sector approach to climate change. You talked about, you know, the steel people getting together, et cetera. Are the oil and gas people getting together too to talk about these issues? Sure. I mean, for the oil and gas industry, this question is very central to their whole business model. They are in the business of producing fuels, which now the world is trying to decarbonize, which is hard to do. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in the technologies that could allow us to continue to use oil, coal, and gas, but deal with the emissions. That's called carbon capture and storage, 
right? So you continue to use them, but you take the carbon out and you bury it underground. Uh, the oil and gas industry is very pushing very hard to make those feasible. They're very expensive at the moment, so it's not clear that from an economics point of view that's going to be the winning, the winning approach. Um, but look, it's very hard. Imagine just for a minute, put yourself in their shoes, right? You've, you've had decades and decades of a business model uh, built on the idea of, of, of uh, reliable, affordable energy supply using fossil fuels. What are they supposed to do, right? So some of them are saying, well, today we sell molecules of oil and gas, and tomorrow we're going to sell molecules of hydrogen, or we're going to sell electrons instead of molecules. We're going to become clean electricity suppliers. So some European oil majors are going that route. Others are saying, well, we're an engineering company. We're not going to sell electric vehicle chargers, but we sure know how to do complex engineering, and we're going to become carbon management companies that do this capture and sequestration technology, because that's part of our core skill set. So each, each of these companies is approaching yeah. the issue differently, mm -hmm. um, and I would say it's very challenging for all of them. A um, little bit of randomness in this process, but please bear with me. Um, here's one, what are the prospects for repurposing some of the existing technologies that are harmful to the climate to purposes that aren't Harmful? Are there applications for some of these industries that are being made obsolete to, to retool? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, so, so it's not just a matter that you have to tear it down and start over again in a lot of applications. Um, even, even something like a power station. You have a power station that might generate, you use coal, uh, there, there's incredibly valuable grid, grid uh, assets that are associated with that place that have already been built and the way the grid kind of finds, you know, goes and locates at that power station, you could create a different kind of power station there and make use of those. Pipe, pipelines that are used to transport natural gas could be repurposed to transport hydrogen in the future, depending on what kind of steel is inside the pipeline. Uh, buildings obviously can be retrofitted to make them energy efficient and more comfortable and use less energy and cost people less money. So it's not a matter of, of having to take a wrecking ball to the economy and build it again. Um, but on the other hand, I wouldn't expect your, your, your 1998 Toyota Camry to be uh, retrofitted with an electric motor. Thank you very much. Um, several similar questions, and I'll ask one I think is the most general. Will technology save us from cl climate Armageddon? Are we depending too much? on the technology saving us this time? Tech, technology will get us a long way there, but it, it requires a mindset. It requires, uh, I think, uh, an engagement by everybody in solving the problem and thinking, not just, not just waiting for technology to be a solution. So this is not the kind of problem that we as a species have ever dealt with before. And if we want to leave a future that is a comfortable and safe one for our kids and grandkids, we need to be willing to pay attention and all participate in it. That doesn't mean that you're going to have to, um, you know, wear, wear, uh, wear coats at <laughs> in your home in the wintertime and not heat your homes, far from it. But you may have to make decisions about when it's time to replace your boiler. Do you buy a heat pump? 
when it's time to replace your car? Do you pay attention and say, oh, actually, I'm going to go look and see how much an electric vehicle costs these days and what its range is? So being intentional about participating in this story, I think, at minimum, is going to be important. Uh, also, several questions on the role of, of uh, hydrogen in the, in the new uh, green technologies. Um, has someone clearly articulated the financial role of decarbon decarbonization? If so, wouldn't it be possible to raise the $125 trillion to, by 250 If not, what are the challenges for doing so? In, in respect of hydrogen? Yes. So we don't have a, a shortage of capital here in the system. That, that's not really the, the issue. Um, in, in, in terms of hydrogen, you know, Basically, the, the way you might think about it in a simplified way is you're trying to electrify as much of the energy system as you can. So you can electrify road transport for light-duty vehicles. We know that. That's happening. You can electrify stovetops. You can electrify, you know, as heat pump technology gets better, you can replace home appliances with electric appliances. But there are applications that are hard to electrify. Right? It's hard to run trucks or planes or ships on electricity. So you will need a form of fuel to do that, and hydrogen and ammonia, which uh, related, is a, is a good candidate. And you can make hydrogen in a green way um, through electrolysis with renewable energy. So it's, it's not a complicated process in theory. The question is, how, if you're, let's say if you're financing an electrolyzer, which is a facility to make green hydrogen today, and uh, well, you need to know where, how is the hydrogen that you're producing at that location going to get to where it needs to go? Is there a pipeline? Are you going to put it on ships? Um, what's the transport infrastructure? Then where it's going, what is it going to be used for? Is it going to be used to power trucks? Okay, Who, who's making the trucks? Who's buying the trucks? Where are the refilling stations for hydrogen? So when you change a whole system of the economy, you've got to figure it out kind of all at once. And that's the hard part. It's not a drop-in replacement for one little part of the value chain. You're changing the whole thing. So even though it's technically not that complicated and it's kind of easy in a sense to see what direction we need to go, to make it so requires collaboration, again, among governments, financial institutions, engineering companies, you know, technology providers, off-takers of the, of the product, and, and that's, that's what takes time. Um, again, several questions related to the fact that most of what you hear in, uh, on the news or in the popular press it relates to the green energy part of this, not to the, not to the uh, fact that you have to worry about the existing. Um, since we have to count the ice cream on our decarbonization diet, have the climate change models taken this into adequate consideration, or are we overcounting the salads? Yeah, so the, the way I would answer that I is... That was cute. <laughs> the, the energy infrastructure we have today, or which is in the process of being built, that infrastructure alone will emit more carbon in its planned lifetime. It'll overshoot the, that carbon budget I talked about earlier by 66%. And that's not in counting for all of the infrastructure we need to build 
especially in emerging economies, to meet growing demands as, as, as people get uh, wealthier and populations grow, at least in the, in the short term. And so we do have a problem, and this is sometimes called the stranded asset problem, right, which is there's a mismatch between just the proved reserves, for example, under the ground, which, which get counted in the market capitalization of oil and gas companies. If you add up all the proved reserves, that, that, are, that are there for the taking, uh, it, it, it's more than we, sh we should be able to emit under these 1.5 degree scenarios. And so the question is, well, who's gonna blink, right? I mean, it, are they going to be <laughs> taken out of the ground and burned because they can be? Or are they not going to be? If not, why not, right? So this is, this is a good way to think about the, the, the central dilemma here. Um, one about the impacts here. We have seen the effects of the shift of manufacturing out of America on America's rust belt. Do you expect, why do you expect better success in regards to energy? Well, for <clears throat> one thing, um, uh, clean energy can be homegrown, right? So the, the, the actual production of energy, if the, the, the power that's used to make the electricity, the electricity used to power your electric vehicle, if you have one, is made in the United States. It's not made in Saudi Arabia. Um, and similarly, right, if you electrify as much of the energy system as you can, then the, just the production facilities are located here and the jobs associated with them. The question of whether the underlying technology, like the solar, the, the, you know, the solar panels are manufactured here or in China and under what circumstances is now a big subject of trade disputes, <laughs> as, some of you, as some of you may know. Um, and also the reason why countries are now seriously thinking for the first time about creating tariffs, uh, carbon border adjustments, that will basically impose a, a tariff uh, or a duty on an, on, a, on an imported good based on to, to, to create an equivalence between the carbon price that is imposed domestically in a place like the European Union compared to importing that good from a place where there is no carbon price. So it's led to this interesting trade um, question, which now there are a lot of theorists, tr trade theorists trying to work out whether existing WTO rules would allow for a carbon border adjustment mechanism or not, and the European Union is definitely going to test, test the waters on that, I think. Um, just one about the role of China here. Isn't China our natural ally for climate matters? Are we taking proper advantage of that? So, China is, uh, is, is a natural collaborator in avoiding a catastrophic change in the global economy, right, as is every nation. And this is why, uh, uh, under the Obama administration, climate was a, a, a stabilizer in the, in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. Um, and it was a bright spot, uh, as the Chinese called it. In, in that relationship and why we, we managed to do so much with the Chinese, even as we were uh, having very serious disputes over other matters like the Spratleys or trade or human rights. Um, on the other hand, you know, as I mentioned, this is becoming, this is just becoming an economic area of competition, right? I mean, the markets to be won here in 125 trillion of investment is a big market. And so it's natural that China and the U.S. will compete 
for those markets and they're going to use trade tools and other things to try to outcompete each other. So um, on the one hand, everyone has a common interest in working together and even in the current circumstances, it's interesting to see that the US and China kind of quietly announced last November that they were restarting a lot of technical cooperation between the two countries that used to exist 10 years ago on climate um, and, and that's a sign that, they, that the two countries do see common interests, but they'll be competing fiercely too. Then again, several questions that are very similar here, and that is about unexpected events in the world and their impact. What negative impacts on progress toward 2050 net zero are, is there, are there from the war in Ukraine and the possible global recession? I mean, how do you take the unknowns into account when you're doing this problem? Yeah, so the, 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 the energy transition needs to really be understood as a long-term process. It's a multi-decade process. It is not something that's gonna happen immediately and it will be bumpy and there will be zigs and zags. And the war in Ukraine is a great example, I think. So in the short term, the impact of, of the war is likely to be an increase in greenhouse gas emissions because uh, in order to reduce dependence on Russian gas, EU member states will, may need to burn more coal where they still have coal capacity where they can switch between whether a natural gas plant is running or a coal plant is running to produce electricity. And even if they don't, they're sucking all the LNG cargo away from Asia, right? And, and so if there's less LNG liquefied natural gas delivered to Asia, the same thing could happen in Asia, right? Where the balance of coal to gas generation shifts. That's in the short term. But in the medium term, um, Europe's energy security goals are pretty well aligned with its goals to move towards uh, a, a low carbon economy, right? And that's why you see some interesting steps like the EU uh, creating a kind of national security exemption or requirement to speed up permitting of renewable energy projects in member states. Relatively unusual to see an EU-wide imposition of such a thing on top of member states, requiring member states to make permitting decisions about wind power uh, within a year, for example. Um, or doubling down on the rate of renewable energy investment or increasing funding for energy efficiency. So if you're Europe and you're trying to reduce dependence on Russian fossil fuels, you know, the, the, the strategy that they've chosen is to accelerate the rate at which they're doing this. And of course, high energy prices for conventional fuels tend to make the alternative, clean, clean alternatives more attractive as well. Although, um, Clean, you know, electric cars depend on minerals, critical minerals, lithium, nickel, cobalt, right? And so dis disruptions in those markets and an increase in the price of critical minerals also has an effect on the other side of the ledger. And let me return to what we were talking about, or the first questions that were being asked, because there are a couple more here that seemed very interesting to me. Um, in talking about this industrial sector uh, cooperation, is this a pluralistic global problem solving among equals or are there leaders in a given sector that drive what's being done? Mm. Is everyone happy at the end? <laughs> uh, it's a great question. So I gave the example of shipping earlier. The shipping sector relatively unusually 
actually has a global regulator. It's a UN agency called the International Maritime Organization. And so the IMO provided a forum for this conversation to happen, and it, it is structured as a you know, forum of equals among nations, and then there's industry consultation and stuff like that. For steel, there is no global regulator for steel. So the whole thing has to evolve organically, and in practice what happens is you need a critical mass of companies that make steel to be involved. You need, let's say, 20% market share and above. And the steel companies that have decided that they're gonna lean into this are the ones that, pr that practically take the lead. And they have different views. And of course, Chinese steel companies are different than Japanese steel companies, are different than Indian or European or American steel companies. So it, that's what makes this so interesting, right? There is no natural leader or convener, but you have a few firms that kind of nucleate a conversation that everybody knows needs to happen. And then you end up in this strange coopetition sort of setting where everybody wants there to be an outcome, but uh, of course they're not used to cooperating with each other and there's antitrust questions that arise and so it's a really interesting situation. <laughs> so that leads to the question, does it seem likely that capitalism will simply veto net zero? Is this really gonna be an era of cooperation, international cooperation? I don't think capitalism will veto net zero. I think, um, as I said, I think the biggest challenge is will, um, will public policy, frankly, uh, be able to take the lead in figuring out how to make whole to the extent possible, how to minimize the, the destruction of value associated with this transition to workers, communities, and investors, incumbents. Um, that have a stake in the system as it is today. Uh, and again, not treating them as bad actors or, you know, you, you know you're bad because you work for a coal company or you, you're an oil and gas company. That cannot be the attitude. The question is, can we come together as a society and figure out a way through? It's not a great time in our history uh, for those sorts of projects. Um, other countries maybe ha will have an easier time of it. Um, but it's certainly, uh, certainly going to be a challenge. And that's why I said that 1.5 degrees is a great goal, but, but let's, let's be under no illusions that we're on our way there at the moment. Then uh, a couple of questions on, the, on current um, fuels uh, in use. One is, what's the role of nuclear power in all of this? And the other is, there's such a thing as clean coal. Can we... So... Okay, so clean coal, I mean, the, 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 the sense in which there is such a thing as clean coal from a climate perspective is if you take all of the smokestack emissions associated with burning coal and you inject them back in permanently into the ground. Um, that, in, in theory, is what clean, truly clean coal is, is meant to be about. The problem is that it's incredibly expensive to do that. And coal is already more expensive than clean energy uh, in most of this country, right? In most of the United States today, it is cheaper to build a new renewable energy plus storage capacity, clean energy capacity, that provides the same sort of uh, type of energy service as a coal-fired power plant. It's cheaper to build a new one than to operate a coal-fired power plant, which means 
Imagine if it were cheaper for you to buy an electric vehicle than to fuel your gas car for a year, right? That's where we've gotten with, uh, with, with clean electricity in most of the United States, which is why coal is disappearing in liberalized power markets in the US and why it's increasingly being negotiated out in places where, it, where, where it's regulated. So the idea of taking a technology that is already not very cost competitive and adding a very expensive environmental remediation technology on top of it, you could do it, but why would you do it? You know, what's, the, what's exactly the benefit of that versus just switching to, to clean electricity? Um, as for nuclear, nuclear is a zero carbon electricity source, period. The problem that people have with nuclear is not related to whether it's a zero carbon uh, uh, power source or not, it has to do with other <laughs> license to operate concerns. So different countries and different communities take different views, views on that. Let me, do, let me do one more. We haven't talked about a lot about the human aspect of this. In particular, even at 1.5 degrees centigrade rise, uh, there's going to be a lot of things like a lot of migration from areas that are greatly affected by it to, to other, uh, other areas. Like Florida I mean, to Maine? You like mean? Florida to Maine, that's right. We don't want those Floridians up here. Oh, wait a minute, we have a lot of them up here. I shouldn't say that. Um, but no, I mean, these other human factors, um, are we going to ignore them or are they part of the whole equation that we have to, to build into it? Well, I mean, we, we, we absolutely can't ignore them, but this is, you know, I started by describing this as the largest induced change in the economy ever attempted. The reason we're attempting it is because we don't want to incur these costs and because we can see how high those costs are going to be if we don't do something about it. And the, the costs will be, and the effects will be irreversible, right? So, um, so it, is, it is in service of that objective and minimizing human suffering and cost to the economy and risk that this, that, that this whole story is unfolding. But the reality is we're going to encounter some level of climate uh, damages and climate risk. Because no matter what we do in the next few years, the amount of warming and, uh, that, that, that we're gonna see in the next few years is already locked in, right? This is not a movie. You don't sort of switch off the, the emissions at the end of the movie and then the glaciers suddenly come back and the credits roll. <laughs> That's not the time scales we're talking about here, right? So, um, so we have to prepare, and we have to prepare for the climate change that's already baked in, and do our best to avoid uh, what's not. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Paul Bodner. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KJ Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.